Well, good morning, everyone. We are now less than two weeks away from Christmas. We are in the middle of Advent. And I hope that you and your families, as you've been at home uh, doing your own private time with the Lord and also your family worship time, I hope and pray that you have been meditating on the glories of that first Christmas, that very first Christmas. And what Christmas means, what that Christmas means for us. Every Christmas and every day, every hour of our lives, we think about Christmas historically and personally. When we celebrate Christmas, uh, as uh, when we celebrate Resurrection Sunday or Easter, as it's widely known, when we celebrate uh, these times, we are looking back to historical events. We're looking back to the conception of Christ, the miraculous conception of Christ, the, the miraculous virgin birth of Christ. We're looking back to uh, that moment when the wise men came, when Jesus was around two years old. Uh, we're looking back to these historical events. They really happened. They're not just fairy tales. They're not myths. They are true historical realities. But they're also very personal to us, not something just to be marveled at from afar, but something to be appropriated and enjoyed and embraced by us individually. And so I hope uh, this year, as you think about Christmas, that you are thinking about it in both of those ways, historically and personally. And as we teach our kids about Christmas, that we are very much talking about it in both of those ways. These are not just nice stories. These things really happen. They changed history, and they can change our lives. And for those of us who are Christians, they have changed our lives, or we could say the Christ of Christmas has changed our lives. If you would please go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. We are today at the very beginning, verses 1 to 6. Today we come to a new chapter, but not a new topic. We are still looking at the theme of relating to one another in the face of differences. So still the same topic, although we've entered into a new chapter. We'll leave it to the, the uh, academics to discuss whether the chapter break was wrong here and it should have been later or whatever. But what we know is that we're still very much in the same topic as we enter 15, 1 to 6. We are coming back, or we are coming to the back end of this section that runs from the very beginning of chapter 14, 14.1, up through 15.13. And Paul's big idea is that the Christians in Rome should welcome and love one another. He starts with that at the very beginning in chapter 14, that the Christians there should welcome and love one another, and they should do so in the face of or despite the differences they have surrounding Old Testament religious practices. And I've said this before, but we can <clears throat> try to extract certain things in our day that would relate back to chapters 14 and 15. But what we need to understand is that there's a very specific historical context here, and there are very particular Old Testament religious observances and practices that are in view as we watch these disagreements in the background as Paul writes to the Romans. Being scrupulous about meat and wine, particularly meat and wine served in a pagan context like Rome, observing 
certain days, whether those are feast days or Sabbath days or series of days. These are some of the issues where the Christians there in Rome differ. They have different opinions. They have different views. They have different positions on these questions. Some, called the weak by Paul, are still tied to these practices. They are still very much tied to these Old Testament ceremonial religious observances. They are weak, as Paul describes them, because they have yet to fully grasp their new freedom in Christ from these observances. So they are free in Christ not to participate in these observances, not to uh, have these foods be taken in in a kosher manner according to the prescription of the Old Testament Mosaic Law, and not to observe these certain days, and yet they feel themselves tied to these practices. So Paul calls them weak. They are weak in that they have failed to fully understand the implications of the gospel for their freedom. Others, called the strong, recognize that they are indeed free in Christ. And so they eat freely, they drink freely, and they observe all days alike. Every day is the same in Christ. Their, their very lives are acts of worship, moment by moment. And so there, there's a deeper, fuller, richer understanding of the implications of the gospel for life. And before we go and sort of say, okay, immature, immature, we need to understand that a lot of this also has to do with background. For some of these Gentiles uh, who were the, uh, among the strong, there were very few hurdles to overcome. But for many of these Jews, those hurdles remained very much in place. And so for some, you can imagine the, the runner running and the hurdles just sort of fall down. But for some of these Jews, these hurdles are entrenched in concrete. And so it is very difficult for them to extract those practices and observances from their identity in Messiah Jesus. Not to the point to where they find their salvation in these things, but to the point to where they understand that these things are a part of their faithful Christian living. So we have the weak and the strong. The problem is that the weak are judging the strong and the strong are looking down on the weak. Paul uses the word despising, uh, looking upon with contempt, the strong looking down on the weak. So what you have in Rome, and you don't get the sense that this is a, a toxic situation. Paul commends the Romans at the beginning and in chapter 15. Uh, but what we, I think, have in the background is some disagreement going on and some discussion and dispute over these issues. Not to a toxic level, but to a level that is significant enough, as Paul has heard about what's going on in Rome, to a level significant enough that he feels the need to address this issue to the Christians there. So throughout this section, Paul goes back and forth between addressing each side of the divide. Uh, he doesn't just go to one group. He, he speaks throughout this section, 14.1 to 15.13, he speaks to both of these groups or camps, for lack of a better word, within the church, these, these two positions. He speaks to each of them. But we need to recognize, and I've pointed this out several times, that most of his comments are directed to whom? To the strong. 
Most of his comments are to the strong. Paul is more concerned that the strong not dismiss or trample on the weak than he is that the weak be set right and lose their weakness. The strong, those Gentiles and some Jews who eat and drink freely and see all days alike. Paul wants to really focus in on that group and instruct them in Christian living in the midst of these differences. Last week, he dealt, or we dealt with, as we were reading through Paul's letter here, he dealt with the topic of stumbling. That was our topic for last week. This idea of stumbling, it's the image of someone walking down a path and there's a rock placed there. They don't, uh, they don't look down and step over it or go around it, but they stumble over it. And that is what Paul tells the strong they need to guard against. The strong should guard against exercising their freedom in such a way that it causes the weak to stumble. And we saw last week what a great problem that would be for the weak if they stumble. If they go along with the strong and thus act against their conscience. You might be tempted to think, okay, so we have some Christians in Rome who think that uh, you can eat anything, and then other Christians in Rome who say, no, I shouldn't eat that meat. And so you might be tempted to think, well, the strong just kind of lead the way in Christian freedom, lead the way in Christian maturity and robust gospel faith, and just kind of drag those weak along with them and, and have them sit a few times and have that meat, and, and, and they'll eventually get used to eating it. It'll be fine. That's not the direction Paul goes. Paul says, no, there's the problem of conscience. And for those weak individuals, if they partake, not believing in their hearts that what they're doing is pleasing to God, that it is the will of God, then they are sinning against God. And that creates spiritual ruin in their lives. And so what we looked at last week was that the strong should be very much cognizant of the weak and should do everything they can in order that the weak not stumble. Paul says, I'll give it all up. I will give it all up. I'll give up all of my freedoms. I'll give up all of my pleasures if it means the building up rather than the tearing down of my brother or sister in Christ. As we saw last week, this guarding against stumbling involves a few things, and these were our points for last week. It involves sensitivity, being attentive to our brother and sister's conscience. It involves single-mindedness, knowing what the kingdom of God is about, and not getting lost in these little things, but focusing on what really matters. And then finally, self-denial, denying ourselves and oh how difficult that is and that's exactly where we pick up today once again we pick up with this idea this topic of self-denial so Paul introduces it in the passage we looked at last week at the end of chapter 14 he introduces self-denial with this idea hey if it will cause my brother to stumble I just won't do it and that topic then leads us into chapter 15 verses 1 
to 6. So the title for the sermon this morning, which you'll see up here on the slide, is Placing Others Over Self. Placing Others Over Self. Once again, as I've said before, these sorts of things are no-brainers for those of us who are Christians. We say, yeah, of course, duh, this is what you do. But this is, this is much more difficult when we actually have to go and do it, right? It, it sounds really nice on the mantle. It looks really beautiful over in the corner collecting dust. But when we actually have to go and hug that thing and embrace that thing and invite that thing down into the nitty-gritty of Christian living, that's when it becomes really, really challenging. And that's when we realize how much we need the Lord. And it's not a matter of just self-discipline or resolve. So that's our title, Placing Others Over Self. If you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's Word together. We could legitimately go back to the beginning of chapter 14, but we're not going to do that. (laughs) We're not going to do that. I think we've read that quite a few times, so we're going to go ahead and just pick up at the beginning of chapter 15. This is God's word. It is perfect and profitable for his people. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. (coughs) Excuse me. Verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You could go ahead and be seated. We're going to take verse 7 with the passage for next week. More appropriately belongs there. Let's go to God in prayer, ask for his blessing on our time in his word. Father, we thank you for another opportunity to gather. Lord, as we think about our lives, we have had so many of these opportunities, Lord, just week in and week out. Uh, But God, it's, it's so easy to just take these times for granted. It's so easy to be elsewhere in our minds. It's so easy to just be guided by self interest. Father, help us this morning to lay our hearts before your face, to truly, devotionally open ourselves up at this moment to what you will say to us today through your word. Father, help us to listen with attentiveness. We pray that the healing balm of of unifying truth would just move throughout this Local church. Lord, we thank you for the unity that you have blessed us with. We thank you for the love for one another that uh, all of us has experienced. And we could go around and, and give you thanks and praises for how you've used your people in this church to help us and bless us and, and love on each of us. 
So, Father, we give you thanks for this local church. We thank you for one another. We thank you for the life that you have given us that is shown through these acts of love. But, Father, we recognize that we always need to grow. And so we pray that we would grow up into our head, who is Christ, that we would be matured more and more into an understanding of the gospel and the implications of that for how we are to treat our brother or sister. Father, we pray that love would abound more and more in this local body. We pray for the other churches gathered this morning around us, Lord, and especially those uh, that we uh, know well and uh, those whom we've called our sister churches, Lord. We pray that love would abound there as well. Love within those churches and then love between our church and those churches. Father, we ask that uh, we would rightly discern the body, that we would see the body of Christ with uh, the eyes of the gospel, that we would see how precious the church is to our Lord Jesus Christ, the Christ of Christmas, that uh, this time celebrating Christmas would be a time also to celebrate the beauty and wonder of belonging to his church, his bride, his flock, his body. We thank you, Father, for time now to be instructed by your word. We ask that it would be clear and that it would be understood. We pray for uh, true change in each of our hearts. Lord, show us our sin. Uh, Give us the, the grace to repent of those sins, to confess those sins, and move toward wisdom. With your help, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Paul calls the strong to self-denial in this passage, to placing others over self, he points them to three things, and we'll find the, you'll find these on the screen. As he calls these strong believers, once again, as I said, he's focusing in on the strong, not the weak in this passage. And as he focuses in on these individuals there, the Christians in Rome, he points to these three things. So here's what they are. Christ's example, that'll be verses 1 to 3. God's help, verses 4 to 5. And then our goal. So he you could think of these three things as motivators. He, he's pushing these strong believers along in what he's calling for. And as he pushes them along, he is doing so with these three things. Christ's example, God's help, and our goal. So we're going to spend our time looking at each of those. Let's look first at Christ's example. And for that, we're going to look at verses 1 to 3. So look with me there if you would. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Notice how many times the word please is in these three verses. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as, is, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. You know, the truth is, We live in a culture that worships self. Uh, We see this in, you know, we think about the the culture wars. We think about the things that evangelical Christians uh, stand for most in the public square. We think about the things that we fight uh, against in the public square. Those things that we are fighting against have at their core the worship of self. That is the fundamental problem 
that we are finding in our culture. The worship of self. So we need to recognize that pleasing self is second nature to all of us. Uh, By the way, we are in this culture. Okay, so as we are fighting these certain aspects of the culture in various ways, Christians in various positions and offices and and Christians who have uh, various uh, mouthpieces or uh, microphones are going out and they're speaking against these things, what we need to recognize is that all of us, each of us, is a part of this culture. We are daily drinking the water and breathing the air of this culture of self-worship. Worship of self. Because we were born in Adam, as is the case for all human beings, but you add on top of that the fact that we live in this hyper self-absorbed culture. So all people struggle with selfishness because that's at the root of sinfulness. Self-worship is present in every heart. But when you add to that a kind of abandonment over to that, as we find in our culture, we find that it is likely that every single one of us in this room has blind spots of self-pleasing that we can't even see. Every single one of us, not a single one of us here this morning, is immune from what we are drinking in and breathing in, this self-pleasing, self-worshipping, self-absorbed culture situated right in a broken, fallen world. All the more reason for us to pray and ask that the Lord would reveal our hearts to us. Read his word and let the word Cut us to the heart. Let the word expose what is going on down inside of us. And having fellowship with brothers and sisters, and think of this, brothers and sisters in Christ who are different from us, where we're able to see many of the the ways that we have these blind spots to our own self-absorption. In the case of the Christians in Rome, these strong believers are tempted to simply press ahead with their freedoms. They were tempted to leave the weak behind, to enjoy what they wish without regard for or even with contempt for the weak. They were tempted to please themselves. Paul says they must turn from that and go the other way. And he starts here with this word obligation. He says they have an obligation laid upon them. Uh, You know, there is a a sense of duty in the Christian life. I love the way uh, John Piper describes the joy that we find in our relationship with God. The way that, that we, the emphasis falls more on joy and less on duty. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That this satisfaction in God, this joy in God, where we are pursuing God out of this own desire for our own pleasure in God, this Christian hedonism, a beautiful idea, a beautiful concept, and it helps us dig into an aspect of the Christian life that maybe for many, many decades has been ignored. But that is not to throw aside the notion of duty. It's not to throw aside the notion of obligation because we recognize that there will be many times when we don't feel that joy 
when we're not experiencing those, those, that, that sense of God's presence. We're not experiencing those things that, that we feel in our own consciousness make us delight in God in that moment. And yet we, we come to God's word in faith, in hope, recognizing that there are certain obligations laid upon us by our Lord. And that's what we find here. They have an obligation, Paul says, laid upon them. They have a duty in Christ to think and behave a certain way. So what is that way? What is that obligation? Well, the big idea is simple. Don't be about pleasing yourself. Replace pleasing self with, with pleasing neighbor. Paul is encouraging the Christians there to, to set self aside. Set self aside and what to consider what would contribute to your neighbor's good. And let me just ask us that question. I mean, what is going through our minds most of the time when we're driving, when we're at work, when we're interacting with people? Our neighbor's good must replace our focus on self. This is similar to what we find in Philippians 2, verses 3 to 4. Do nothing. By the way, do nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, the, there are two legs, as we find it here, as Paul describes it, two legs to this big idea. Big ideas, not pleasing ourselves, but he gives sort of two legs that help this idea to stand, bearing with their failings and building them up. So we're asking the question, what does it look like to not please ourselves and to please our neighbor within the context of the local church? Specifically for the strong, those who are tempted to despise the weak, what does it look like to please our neighbor and not to be about pleasing ourselves. And he describes it in these two ways, bearing with their failings and building them up. So to bear with their failings means to help bear up under their weaknesses rather than carelessly trampling on them. That's what the Christians in Rome were tempted to do. They were tempted to look down upon and just trample right over the consciences of their weak brothers and sisters. But Paul says, do the exact opposite. Get underneath there with them and bear up under those weaknesses with them. Now that's not to say that uh, the, the strong are to adopt the weaknesses of the weak. It's not to say that those unnecessary scruples of the weak are to become the scruples of the strong. So that Christian freedom is eliminated from the strong. That's not what Paul is saying. But what Paul is saying is that rather than trample over the other, get underneath with them and bear alongside of them the burdens of their scrupulous conscience. Similar to what we find in Galatians chapter 6 verse 2. Bear one another's Burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is what love looks like to bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters. And by the way, 
How much more significant is that when the burdens we are bearing are the very things that annoy us, trouble us, get in our way, take from us, cause us to lose some of our pleasures or comforts? All the more in those situations ought we to enter into this bearing up under with our fellow Christians. So bearing with their failings. And then he says, building them up. To build them up means to contribute to their flourishing in Christ. Christ has established them on the the foundation of himself. Christ has built them up. And God is continuing to build them up into conformity with Christ. And our job as their fellow Christian is to contribute to that process. So we're asking this question, am I contributing to the sanctification of my brother or sister in Christ? First of all, do I even care? Do I even care about the sanctification of my brother or sister in Christ? Am I eliminating anything that would, that would deconstruct that sanctification? And further, am I doing everything I can to put those stones and bricks in place the best I can, used by God alongside of other Christians to build them up in Christ? That's what it looks like to be the church. Feeding growth, building up, not tearing down. After telling his readers what they ought to do in verses 1 to 2, Paul motivates them in verse 3. How? How? How does Paul motivate? Where's the first place Paul goes to motivate his readers? He goes first to the example of Christ. So he writes this in verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, interestingly here, he quotes from Psalm 69.9, this Psalm of David. This particular Psalm of David was one of the Psalms referenced very much, very frequently in the New Testament as a messianic Psalm. So we find this one cited. Psalm 110 is another example of a psalm that gets cited a lot in the New Testament as a messianic psalm, a psalm that reflects the experience of the future Messiah. Have you ever been reading, especially when you first kind of came to faith in Christ or you first started really reading the Bible, have you ever come to a psalm and you read it? I love the way Psalm 22 does this. And you're reading it. You don't, you don't really know very much, but you know enough as you're reading this psalm, you're like, Oh my goodness, that sounds like Christ. Like if, if, if Christ were speaking while he was on the cross or we were reading Christ's mind while he was on the cross and we're watching the experience of Christ unfold in the four gospels, it, it's what you're reading in Psalm 22. Or you read other Psalms and you see, and then we see the New Testament, the gospels, picking up on these, these Psalms and appropriating them for the Messiah. What we see there is the little C Christ, David, the little C uh, anointed, the little A (laughs) anointed one, 
is a type of the big C Christ or the big A anointed one. And so David is typologically going about his life and yet Christ's experience is there mirrored in David's experience. So we're reading these things and seeing the life and experience and heart of Christ. Well, that's what we have here in Psalm 69.9, a messianic psalm. The words of Christ are here placed in the mouth of David. Not in such a way that eliminates David's experience. We could go back historically and look at David's experience and we could identify what's going on there. It doesn't eliminate that. But it is ultimately a reference to Christ. And these are the words placed in the mouth of David. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. When Christ came into the world, the reproaches, the hatred that existed towards God was directed towards him. Of course, he's God incarnate. But think about sin in the world as hatred of God. God entered the world. What do you think the world did to him? He was crucified. And nowhere were these reproaches more evident than at the cross where he was crucified. So why did Christ come into this world and endure these reproaches? Why did he go to the cross? The answer that Paul gives here is that he was pleasing others rather than pleasing himself. Christ was putting others over himself. This is what we read in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, one of the biggest problems with the whole, uh, well, there's many problems, but one of the problems with the whole seeker-sensitive church idea is uh, that you, you basically show up at church and you're taught to think, what are you doing for me? What are you doing for me? What did you do to draw me? What are you doing to keep me? What are you doing to entertain me? What are you doing to please me? What are you doing to make me feel good? It, I want you to see, it's the exact opposite of Christ. Christ came not to be served, but to serve. And that's the way we ought to do church. That's the way Christians ought to think about the Christian life, is we come to serve, not to be served. This is the way of Christ. This is the example of Christ. So what is Paul calling his readers to? Well, we need to return to Philippians 2 again. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. As we think about Christ's example, listen to these words. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, if we want to bear with the failings of our brothers and sisters in Christ, if we want to love our fellow Christians, we must keep our gaze on this Christ. It's his example that we are following as we do this. And it's his power by the Spirit that is enabling us to follow his 
example. Let me say this to us as well. As we think about Christmas coming up here in less than two weeks, as we think about Advent, the lead up to Christmas, as we think about how Paul is using Christ's coming and his death in this passage, as we think about how Paul is holding Christ up as an example, I think we could say that a right understanding of Christmas breeds self-denial. Think about that. As we, as Christians, approach Christmas, we want to ask the question, what does Christmas mean practically? What does it mean to practically celebrate Christmas? And what we're told here is what it means to, to follow Christ, what it means to adore this Christ who came into the world and took upon himself the cross, took upon himself our sins, what it means to truly celebrate the Christ of Christmas and to follow the Christ of Christmas is to likewise deny ourselves. So we could say that Christmas should be the most selfless time of the year. Let me go to our second thing that Paul points out here to motivate his readers, and that is God's help. So we've seen Christ's example. Now, verses four to five, let's look at God's help. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ. Jesus. Paul has just motivated his readers by pointing to Christ's example, but in doing so, he quoted the Old Testament. That's interesting. Christ is, uh, Paul is writing 27, 24 years after, in 57 AD. He's writing significantly after Christ, but he, he in pulling up Christ's example, he cites the Old Testament. He quotes from this psalm. This reference to the Old Testament scriptures then prompts him to consider what the scriptures do in our lives. So some people say verse 4 is kind of like a parenthesis. Paul mentions Christ as our example and he quotes the Old Testament and that then leads him mentally to go and consider what the Old Testament does for us to consider the role of the scriptures for us. And amazingly, what Paul says is that these Old Testament texts were written for us Christians. These Old Testament passages were written for believers in Christ. Christians who would live hundreds and for us thousands of years later. We live four thousand years after Abraham. Four thousand years. We live three thousand years after David. These things were written for our instruction. You know, it's just amazing to think, it really humbling and, and it gives us gratitude to the Lord to think that God had our very lives, our very church, our very uh, situations in mind when he inspired those texts. That's the mind of God. That's the incredible mind of God, that, that God, when he inspired the Psalms or any other text in the Old Testament, here the Old Testament is in view, when those scriptures were inspired, that God literally, in inspiring them, had our unique situations in mind so that those scriptures could minister to us in particular 
ways. Instruct us, as Paul says here. Let me put it a little more loudly. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Paul says the same thing. Now these things happen to them. He's referring to the Old Testament experiences. Now these things happen to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction. They were written, those Old Testament things were written for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Just think about that this morning in 2021. We are people who can be described in this way. People for whom, on whom, the end of the ages has come. That's who we are. That takes all the mundane of our lives and raises it up exponentially. And as Paul describes it here, the scriptures produce these two things in us. So it's two words here, endurance and encouragement. And at this particular point, I would favor the translation of the NIV, or at least the interpretation behind the translation of the NIV. It says this, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, and here's the part that I favor over the, over the uh, ESV, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. In other words, what the NIV is recognizing is that both endurance and encouragement come from the scriptures. And as you read that in the, in the ESV, you're, you're not getting that. You're getting endurance as a separate thing from the encouragement of the scriptures. So the grammar there is being taken. Endurance, one thing, encouragement of the scriptures. Whereas the NIV is reflecting endurance and encouragement of the scriptures. All of those things coming together. So what is Paul saying? The scriptures equip us for this others-oriented kind of life. Notice that. That's how we become equipped for every good work, as Paul tells Timothy. The Scriptures help us to place others over self, to bear with the failings of the weak, to build others up rather than look out for our own interest. How are we going to go about doing this, Christians? Once again, right, up on the mantle, it looks great. Over in the corner, it looks great. But then when we invite that thing into our lives, it becomes really challenging. How is it that we're going to come to be this way and do this sort of thing as a matter of habit, as a pattern of life within our local church here? Well, there is no shortcut. We must go to the scriptures. Regular intake of God's word is essential for building us up in this specific way. We cannot live without the scriptures. It is our means of instruction. So much so that you can almost be assured that where there is divisive individuals in the church, there is a deficit of scripture. Where there is a a spirit of divisiveness, of quarrelsomeness, where there is a, a kind of propensity to divide and tear apart, there is the absence or significant lack of God's holy word. Because where we take scripture in, notice Paul's logic, we become the kinds of people who lovingly pull our brothers and sisters together. That's what the scriptures do. That's what the example of Christ does. Notice in verse 5 that Paul prays that God would grant these things to the believers But back to verse four, 
How does God give it to us? How does God grant it to us? We have to put the two together, verses four and five. Verse five, God gives it to us. Verse four, it comes through the scriptures. So how does God give it to us? Through the scriptures. And here's my point. It's not going to fall in your lap from the sky. You're not gonna just become a stronger Christian. You're not gonna just become a more mature Christian, a more loving Christian, a less selfish Christian. It's not going to just happen. I I was 40 then and I'm 50 now. I'm I'm just more loving. No. You just got 10 more years in your habit of selfishness to become more and more concrete in your life. It's not, age does not sanctify. God's word sanctifies. And it sanctifies children. It sanctifies teenagers, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and beyond. All of us need constant challenge, constant comfort, constant endurance from these holy scriptures. And if you neglect the scriptures, you will not have these things. Let me say that again. If you neglect the scriptures, you will not have these things. And you will just wreak havoc wherever you go. Wherever you go. The result of these gifts from God, of these helps provided through scripture, is a life of hope. And this tells us that only a life full of hope in God can lay aside self. So we know that only a life saturated in Scripture can lay aside self, but only a life where there is a deep hope in God will be able to put self aside. And this life of hope described at the end of verse 4 is parallel to what we find at the end of verse 5. Living in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. So let's pull it all together. Hope, Harmony, Christ-likeness. Let me say those three words again. Hope, harmony, Christ-likeness all go together as three sisters. And it all pours out from the scriptures. This tells us that unity or harmony in a local church comes from being committed to the scriptures. And it also tells us that as evangelical Christians, we cannot partner with those who disregard or who disbelieve the word of God. As we talk about unity, you might be tempted to think unity at all costs. I'm not talking about an ecumenical movement. Pull together all the denominations. Pull together everybody who says they're a Christian. I'm talking about unity in the gospel of Christ on the word of God, where there are people who don't believe the word of God or who put the word of God aside, there can be no unity because our unity is drawn from, as we see here, the harmony is drawn out of, just as the hope and the Christ likeness are drawn out of, the word of God. Here in verse five, we also have a prayer to help guide us as church leaders. So if you're a deacon or an elder or a gospel community group leader, ministry leader, here you go. May the God of endurance 
and encouragement. Grant us to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. That's our prayer, brothers and sisters. We're involved in any leadership within the church. That is our prayer. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant us to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Let this prayer stand over women's ministry. Let this prayer stand over children's ministry. Let this prayer stand over men's ministry. Let this prayer stand over the diaconate work of the church and the governance of the church by the elders. Let this prayer guide us. May he unify us as he turns us away from self, points us to Christ, and roots us in the Holy Scriptures. As we finish up this morning, we're going to come to our last motivator that Paul gives here, and that is our goal. He wants to put before us the why. So look at verse 6. That together, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Purpose clauses are a really important part of grammar. They answered the big why question. Anytime you see these, you should perk up because it is telling you why. And we know why is the great question. For what purpose? For what purpose ought we to place others over self? For what purpose ought we to follow the example of Christ? For what purpose ought we to be helped by the scriptures towards harmony in the body? What is our goal? Well, Paul answers the why question here in verse 6. And he says that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a simple answer. It is one that we take for granted. It's, it's too familiar. It's just too, too familiar. It's much like the idea Jesus died for my sins. Profound. Essential. Central. But it becomes kind of a trite cliche. It becomes just, just a thing we say and we just don't feel the weight of it. We, we can't penetrate to the depth of it, how multifaceted it is. We just say it so quickly and so casually. The same is true of this, to glorify God. To glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, it is simple. Yes, we take it for granted, but we must never forget why. To glorify God. What's the issue in our unity? What's the issue in our harmony? What's the issue in our rejection of selfishness? What's the issue in our attentiveness to Scripture? The glory of God. Are we Reformed Protestants or not? Sole Deo Gloria. For the glory of God alone. That's why we exist. And that's why Paul calls these Christians to do what he says they need to do. To bear up under. To please the other rather than self. Because God's glory is at stake in the world. We do what we do for the glory of God. To make God's great name known, to make God look good in the world, to showcase his attributes and his reputation. And isn't it striking that this glorifying of God happens by means of this church harmony? 
It happens by means of the church being united. That means that that anything that would divide the church should be seen with the utmost suspicion because the glory of God is at stake. Do you see the logic of the apostle? How carelessly we divide the church. How carelessly we contribute to disharmony. How carelessly we hold on to the pleasing of self. Notice the implication of Paul's logic here. However you treat the harmony of the church is how you treat God's glory. Now that's probably something we haven't thought about very much. We, we tend to think, okay, we, yeah, we're glorifying God, but you know, in this particular dispute or in this particular difference, in this particular issue going on in the church, I can just kind of you know, freely just engage, right? And just, just let myself go a little bit, get angry, have some bitterness in my heart, make a judgment, despise my brother or sister, create rifts, gossip, whatever. And it's okay, it's fine, I'm, I'm Christian, I'm glorifying God. This is how we glorify God. This is how God is glorified. Listen to the apostle. How we treat the church tells us everything about how we treat God's glory. And let me just say this. What does that mean for your relation to the church? As you think about joining a local church, as you think about your participation in being present with the local church. We're not just spectators that have a devotional life, right? That's not what we are. We're not just private Christians. Uh, Read the scriptures. We are people who belong in community with God's people. And it is in that belonging together in harmony that our God is made much of. So if you love the glory of God, you will love his church. And it is a very good indicator how you treat the church as to how you truly regard God's glory. Remember where I ended last week, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 31 to 33. I want to read that again because it's the same idea. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I, I, would, I would have it, I pray that no one in this room ever quotes that verse again without immediately thinking, die to self, harmony in the church. That that when you say those words, which get you just plucked right on out of context, and we say them all the time, yes, whether you eat or drink. By the way, he's talking about the same conscience thing here. You know, we just skip over those. Those are inconvenient. Whether We really want to get to the end of the verse. Whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. Yes, that's me. Self-denial and harmony in the body of Christ. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything, I do not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. That's what Paul was about. The salvation of sinners for the glory of God. And it meant for the apostle that he laid down all kinds of advantages. He laid down all kinds of privileges. He laid down all kinds of comforts. He denied himself because he cared so much about the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ realized in the heart of sinners. That was his life. And that ought to be the life of everyone who claims Christ as 
Lord. So are you serious about God's glory? Do you want to make him known in the world? Do you want to uphold his glorious reputation for all to see? Then what do you do? Seek the harmony of the church, avoid quarreling, set aside self, and serve your brother or sister like Christ served us when he left the glory of heaven, took upon himself human flesh, and went to, went to a painful, reproach-filled, and wrath-bearing death on the cross. Follow this Christ. Follow this Christ. Bathe yourself in Scripture. Seek the glory of God. And let's together with one mighty voice, one singular voice, in the face of differences, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God for these passages. Praise God for these passages in such a divisive time. Not just in our culture, but a divisive time in the church. Praise God that in his goodness, in his kindness, in his providence to us here at Four Corners Church, that in a season like this, that, that he has put before us these chapters. None of this is by accident. And so we give God praise. But now the responsibility lies on us. Will we go out and be doers of this? Or will we let it just drift into the background? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you have given us today from Romans 15. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and his example. But above that, we thank you for the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his perfect sinless life. We thank you that he came here as we celebrate at Christmas. He came here not to please himself, not to be served, but to serve us, to die for our sins. Father, we thank you for this selfless love of Jesus. Father, we belong to him. We thank you for that. We don't deserve that. We praise you that we are in Christ and we ask you in Christ to strengthen us to live this kind of life among our brothers and sisters. Help us, Lord. We pray for all the churches uh, during this time, Lord, those gospel-centered, Bible-believing churches, Lord, that you would protect from this craving sometimes after divisions, this craving for uh, extreme making of distinctions in ways that often divide the body and do not contribute to your glory. Father, we pray that you would help Four Corners to be strong in the midst of this season. We pray that you would bind our hearts to each other, even in the face of our differences. We ask for your grace. We pray that you would be with us now as we partake of the Lord's Supper, that we would commune with Christ and commune with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.